Welcome to Every Quarter, the voice of Andover, Phillips Academy's official podcast where we share the compelling stories, thoughts, and ideas of our faculty, alumni, students, and distinguished campus guests. Our monthly show features candid conversations on current topics, academia, and Andover's connection to important matters happening around the world. If you like what we do, be sure to subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a review, comment, and rating. Your feedback helps promote every quarter and helps us tell the type of stories you want to hear. Humans have always documented their experiences for future generations on caves, tablets, scrolls, and parchment. So imagine a world where these records were lost. Imagine if the Magna Carta was placed in a drawer never to be seen again. On today's EQ, we meet members of the Ojibwe of White Earth Nation, whose search for one of their nation's founding documents led them here to Andover, where a large birch scroll that contains ancient accounts from their ancestors languished undiscovered for more than a century. You see, Phillips Academy is home to one of the nation's major repositories of Native American archaeological collections. It's called the Robert S. Peabody Museum. Founded in 1901, the museum's first curator was the legendary Warren King Moorhead, known as the Dean of American Archaeology. So how did Moorhead come into possession of this sacred scroll and many other artifacts? And what does this discovery mean to its people and their future? Join Phillips Academy archaeologist Ryan Wheeler and three members of White Earth Nation, who recently met at Peabody to tell the story behind the lost scroll and its incredible journey to repatriation. I am Ryan Wheeler. I'm the director of the Robert S. Peabody Museum of Archaeology here at Phillips Academy. And we have some very special guests here today. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, but also tell us a little bit about their, um, their role exactly uh, um, and what brought them here today. Hello, my name is Tara Mason. I'm the Secretary Treasurer for the White Earth Reservation uh, in northern Minnesota. So uh, it is to see the beautiful collection, um, the White Earth collection that, that you have here, and uh, having the opportunity to really take the time to look and see what you have and hopefully build relationships and get some more insight on uh, some of the things that, that White Earth has way out here. So miigwech. Thank you. Fantastic. Welcome. Uh, my name is Merlin Deegan. I'm the culture coordinator for White Earth. Um, the reason why I'm here is to observe and to check out some of the artifacts that were given to Mr. Moorhead a uh, long time ago and, um, and build a relationship and attempt to repatriate some of the items that... Um, belong to Gawabaga Gunnakug. And I'm Jamie Arsenault, uh, and I've been working with um, the White Earth Nation for a little while in, uh, in an attempt to identify uh, and document where materials are uh, across the country and around the world, um, and also uh, work with them on some repatriation efforts. Bonjour, and in a way, my God, I'm an anonic. 
Bob Shimmick Indigenous Cause, Ani McKee on a quid, Nindigo, Ugashko Manasi, Hindu Dame, Gawa Bob Ikanakog, Ishkonigan, Hindu Njaba. So, my name is Bob. I live in the Mud Lake District of the White Earth Indian Reservation. And um, <clears throat> as a part of Well, how I got here was um, I ended up having lunch with Jamie in Bemidji one day, and she started talking about this repatriation work she was doing, and she said, oh, once in a while I run across things from White Earth. Do you guys by chance want those things back? (laughs) I said, well, (laughs) of course. (laughs) So that's, you know... That's the situation that kind of, or where a lot of this started was just, it wasn't by intent, but it was just sort of, you know, a a casual conversation over lunch. And that, um, you know, we decided to put together the effort to um, see what was out there and, you know, ultimately make a determination. of you know of the things we find what if anything should come back or should all of it come back i mean you know this is all things that that are off in the future yet but it's it's all part of um part of the work that i feel is important to um reestablishing the foundation it's like every nation every great great nation has its founding documents and of course we have treaties and we have the IRA governments and we have all these different things which um, are political instruments okay they're about governance they're about control regulation and all that sort of thing Um, but I truly believe that the cultural, the spiritual, and much of the social foundation in terms of who we are as Anishinaabeg is in a lot of these items that we see here as well as those which we're going to find elsewhere. You know, we were just talking over coffee, and, you know, the spirit is still in some of these things. There's still life here in many of these items. So that's some, you know, these are the things that we have to talk about amongst ourselves in terms of, you know, what, what, what are the next steps? What do we, what do we do? So that's how I got here. Sorry it took so long. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. Whenever we here at the museum talk to visitors or students or, or parents about repatriation, they're, they're fascinated. They want to know more about the, the details, the process. And one of the questions that we get a lot is why tribes are, are interested in repatriating uh, either human remains or funerary objects or, or sacred objects. And, and maybe um, you could speak to how repatriation uh, fits into the work of the White Earth Nation. Well... Um, I think when we really start talking about this subject, we really start looking at, at this road and, and kind of where we're going. There's, 
it has to go back in and we tie it into the amount of loss, right? So when we talk about repatriation, we, we talk about bringing back, bringing home, bringing um, that life back. So we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about like the, the spiritual, the sacred items that are here, you know, and one of the pieces is that is that they are, they are alive, you know, they are, they are still, um, they're not objects. You know, these have meaning, significant meaning, you know, to the, the welfare and the well-being of who we are as Anishinaabe, as um, Ojibwe people. And the piece that really comes to mind when we start talking about the importance of repatriation and what this means is that, that these are things that the Creator gave us to help us. And one of the pieces that we really face, and especially myself, um, and I'm not saying that and not to discredit anybody else, but I see the effects of assimilation and acculturation on our people every day. You know, we look at, um, we look at the tragedy that, that we face every day, uh, poverty, uh, addictions, violence. Uh, we have a lot of social issues that, that, stem from trauma that stem from historical trauma and the creator gave us these tools he gave us our language he gave us this way of life to take care of us you know and so in in a way when we start talking about repatriation this is to help bring us whole again there are some things that need to come home because this is what's going to help us overcome and um, deal with our historical trauma so we talk a lot of times about what is historical trauma. We talk about um, the different things that have happened to us as a people, uh, what's led up to kind of where we're at. But a lot of times we don't talk about the healing. We, we try to say something along those lines to visitors, but I don't think we do it nearly as well as, as you just did. And one, one thing that you mentioned about, and, and Bob said this too, is how um, a lot of the... A lot of the items that we have out really are live. We've tried to talk to the students here about that in some of the classes that we've done. And I think it's, it's really hard to explain that because, because as, as Westerners, we live in such a kind of, a, we have such a different worldview um, where humans have souls and other things are, are simply inanimate objects and it's tough to explain exactly how um, you know other other cultures really have a very different and in, in, in most cases really richer view of the world where you're walking through and you have relationship with um, with things that we would just say are just sort of inanimate objects so I don't know if any of you want to talk about that a little bit well I can I can say you know one thing to sort of pick up on what what Tara was talking about, you know, why it's important for these things to come home for the community. It's also important for things to come home again for the objects, the materials themselves, because they do have that spirit, you know. So one of the conversations that I sometimes have had um, with with folks in museums who, you know, wonderful people, very well-meaning, very, very, um, you know, great conversations, but there's always been that um that focus on you know, wearing the gloves and this long-term preservation of materials and, and objects that are sacred, that are alive, that have not been fed, 
in a hundred plus years have not been sung to in a hundred plus years have not heard their language and you know a hundred plus years right and so it's almost a cruelty sometimes when I think about it when I'm in those places where I see something that is alive that has been starving that has been you know it's it's been kept you know from deteriorating right but it also hasn't been able to be loved or even known about right there are communities that have no idea where their materials are so every time you see something in a collection there's a story something had to happen for it to get there and you know maybe um you know maybe it was was a, a gift but more often than not <laughs> you know something happened and that something wasn't good you know and a lot of times when uh when those collections list something as a gift, you know that was a gift under duress because you have to look at the all all the the various forms of dispossession that were occurring at the time that so many materials were acquired. You know whether it was land or children being taken away and ceremonies having to go underground. It was usually during those times that you would see so many things leaving from a community, right? And um, and so it's important for those things to come home again, whether it's ancestors, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that need to be done for them too, you know, um, or whether it's it's these sacred objects, you know, even songs, you know, they, those are all things that need to come home again. You know, a lot of the keys to what or how we're supposed to take care of these things is stashed in these museums all around the country. Now, in my mind, a museum is where things go to die. That's, that's just me. Okay, I, you know, that's, that's my own opinion. Um, our task is to find those things that, and identify those things and Bring them back to White Earth. Bring them back to Gawa Babakanakog. And bring them back to life in the context of our culture, our spirituality, our social structure, even economics to a certain thing, or to a certain extent. So I would like to say the reason why I feel that we need to do this is because uh, we as Anishinaabeg of Gawabagaganakug, these these items as w that were expressed earlier, they're and as um, Bob just mentioned, they're alive. And so our our belief is that our elders are Shomas and Komas and Nuns, Mushkiki and Iniwugs or Nandui Wewin, however you would say that our medicine men, our people these are alive. They understand what's going on. Um, what's what's been happening is right now is they've been all asleep. All the museums, they're all asleep. So when we come along as uh, Anishinaabeg and we open them up and we look at them, they're they're alive. And so they reach out to us and they they do talk to us. If you if you have the ability to understand self. And you listen to them; they will talk to you, um, and that's that's what's happening. And we, it's our duty is to bring them home and to feast them and to acknowledge them, 
and to bring them back to life and um, so that our people, our youth, Tara talked about the trauma. We all know about trauma and historical trauma. What this is going to do for our youth is it is going to give them a purpose again that they can say, hey, look at that. That was made 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Our youth, our youth are so, there's so many disparities out there that it's, it's, it's not even funny. Um, so what this will do to our youth is it, it will give them hope. That's what our youth need. This is not about me or any of us here. It's about our future generation as Anishinaabe people. We have to look at the generations, and Bob kind of touched on it, is, is we have our creation story. We have our migration story. We have our seven prophecies. Within our seven prophecies, we were told that this was all going to happen, and it is happened. And then it talks about <clears throat> that we're in our seventh prophecy right now, talks about the things that are going to come home to us and how there's going to be a new, there's going to be a new people, a new, a new essence to grasp these items and to move forward. So that's why I'm here and all of us are here, um, is we need to bring these items back home to where they came from. I wanted to... I wanted to uh, say that you've all shared a lot with us. You did before when you were here, and we learned a lot about, about this collection from you, and today we've learned a lot more. One of the things that we, we didn't talk about yet is the Birch Bark Scroll, which was repatriated last year, um, and we were really glad to see it go home. <clears throat> um, and we I remember you, uh, Bob, especially you talked about uh, you, I think you likened it to the Magna Carta in some ways. And, um, you know, it's clearly a, a really significant foundational document, but, um, and we've, we could maybe think about it like the Bible, but it seems like some of those analogies aren't really completely satisfactory. And I'm wondering if you could help us think about, um, what that scroll represents uh, in Ojibwe culture. Well, when we first looked at it last year, um, we didn't realize it was a two-sided scroll, that there's a whole other inscription on the back side of it. So... <clears throat> We've done a little bit of conservation work on it now, preservation work, stabilization, structural stabilization, I think, was, uh, you know, the key to a lot of the work that was done, I guess, um, last month at White Earth on the Scroll because it was, um, it was deteriorating and needed some uh, stabilization, but you know, in the process of doing that, you learn, and you learn, and you learn. Now, the white side of that thing is um, clearly about the Medewiwin Lodge at White Earth. And the various degrees that kind of 
it's like a it's like a road map. It's like uh, here's how you get from point A to you know other points down the road, depending on how far down that road you go with the various degrees. You know, some places have four degrees of the Medewi wind. Some places have eight. White Earth is one of those places that has eight. Um, so, yeah, there's, what do they call, there's that, um, what do they call that um, when you translate the um, that red road is forever everlasting life the backside once we were able to stabilize the scroll structurally so we could turn it over without further damaging it um, you know here again you know we're talking about I feel what are instructions that are specific to the White Earth Lodge okay other places don't do it the way is instructed on the back and what's on there is a bear. Now, we use a bear to shoot that medicine at White Earth, okay? And then there's the four levels, the four degrees, all the way up to, you know, that person who's receiving this gift, this gift of life. From this, from this medicine. And uh, all those intertwining, interconnecting bear tracks, you know, there's a path of bear tracks that goes all the way through this, you know, and uh, takes you to that point of Knowledge, uh, um, knowledge, enlightenment, and the gift of life. So that was really <clears throat> to see it that clearly uh, drawn out. Many of us were like, "Wow, this is one." We didn't know, had no clue it was back there too. You know, to see that path. That path of life, from start to finish, that clearly drawn out, was really remarkable and really revealing of a lot of things. So um, it is it is an important, it's an important foundational document which needs to be preserved for many, many, many generations of White Earth, Anishinaabeg, yet to come because um, our path to all those things is laid out on that scroll. 
Well, I just I want to say thank you um, from from White Earth uh, for this opportunity and and being able to share all these things with us and and giving us the time that we need to walk through and and really look and and take that assessment of what's <clears throat> of what's here and what needs to be taken care of and um, so I, like for me I really appreciate this opportunity and really looking at how how do we really move forward together um, and creating an opportunity uh, for both even the students here and also our youth back home you know so I think that we have uh, opportunities before us and that um, we can have a really good relationship but for the time today I really am grateful for being here and being able to to see all of this have the time that is needed to spend with these with these items and so with that uh, thank you very much I'm so glad you're here too thank you yes it's been an honor to come here and observe and to uh, um, participate in this process so miigwech thank you I'm glad you're back Merlin and I, I just you know from from um, just in thinking about the repatriation of the scroll last year you know so often from a museum perspective it's almost um, in those early discussions of repatriation, there's a, a, a little bit of hesitation, a little, you know, feeling almost like like a museum from their collections perspective is losing something by engaging in repatriation. And I think that, you know, this this new chapter here, this this relationship that is being renewed with White Earth, what it does is it shows that both sides really stand to gain. You know, so repatriation done in the way, in the spirit in, in that it was intended, right? Um, you know, museums, they stand to, to learn more about what, what they have to, to have and build relationships with communities that are still alive and thriving today, that have knowledge today, right? Um, and, and that is, you know, what, what Tara was just mentioning about, you know, with youth and um, the things that we learn from the materials when they come home and, you know, all of that, it, everybody, stands to to benefit um and so thank you very much thanks jamie that's really well said i think we our experience with repatriation has consistently been that we've we've gotten a lot more out of the relationships with with living people than with you know ancient objects and just staying here in boxes so <laughs> i want to in closing just say you know, here we are, January 12th, is it, of the year 2017. And there'll be a time when we're all forgotten, but the legacy of what we're doing right now will live on for many, 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 many years once we leave. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. Every Quarter is produced by the Office of Communication at Phillips Academy in Andover and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Academy Association, continuing Abbott's tradition of boldness, innovation, and caring. Like what you've heard? Spread the word. Share EQ with friends and connect with us with hashtag EveryQuarterPodcast. You can also find us at podcast.andover.edu.
Thanks for listening. I'm Amy Morris.